Have you ever been really disillusioned by God or with God? Have you ever been just utterly frustrated with His ways, ever complained about how He was treating you? Have you ever been mad at God? Maybe mad at the God that you love and aren't sure at the same time whether you love Him. Have you ever been embarrassed by Him? I mean, trying to explain Him and His ways to other people. Have you ever said any of these things out loud to someone? I mean, at church. (laughs) It's a risky business, isn't it? I mean, Christian culture really sometimes takes on uh, the REM, shiny, happy people facade, where only good things can be shared, and if you're really struggling, you should shove it down so that people don't think you're unspiritual. I mean, we definitely don't want to bring up this stuff in public, because that would seem, at the very least, like it's unspiritual, and at the worst, maybe that you're unfaithful. We were told by Tom Hanks that there was no crying in baseball, but it's become an adage in the church that there's no real crying in Christianity either unless it's tears of joy. Maybe some of you will remember I had a daughter, so I remember well. I blamed it on her, but I loved the movie myself. But in Anne of Green Gables, one of Marilla's earliest chastisements to Anne was to despair is to turn your back on God. And we, at least myself, all nod in pious agreement. But what if the Bible places within its pages texts of despair and complaint, what seems like railing against God? I mean, what if God's own word speaks in a way that gives us permission to tell the truth about what it feels like sometimes to be in this world under God's hand? We come upon such a text this morning in the book of Lamentations And in this book, we get a God-breathed example of how to express our personal disillusionment with God, our anger, our frustration, our incomprehension, our disappointment. Uh, Elie Vassell, the, uh, the author of Night, when he speaks of suffering, he's Jewish, he's not Christian, but he says of this portion of Scripture, in our tradition, the Jewish tradition, you can say that, The prophet Jeremiah goes much further than I do. Jeremiah is the only one who predicted tragedy and survived tragedy to tell about it. And he says, you, O God, killed without pity. I would never go that far, but he says it. You killed without pity. You slaughtered without pity. There is no other religion in the world that allows such an attitude toward God and such language with God, he writes. He's talking about these books of Scripture that we're in right now, where he says, what sort of religion allows you to say to your God the sort of complaints that the book of Lamentation puts before us? This book comes to us arguably from the darkest period in Israel's history. The facts of the account are given to us in the book of Kings, but you don't get much of the feeling in the book of Kings. You just get the historical reality. But the feeling of it, the emotions of the event, are placed right here in the book of Lamentations. I mean, the facts are this, that Judah has been overrun by the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar, mainly as a consequence of the rebellion of Zedekiah, but there's a long history of rebellion that precedes it. It began with a famine so severe that there was no food for the people of Israel, and it finally kind of culminates 
when the king and all the war men of Israel fled and the army of Babylon overtook them in the plains of Jericho. Ironically, the first battle they won in entering the land is the place that they're defeated when they're going to be carried out of it. Zedekiah, the king of the time, has his sons brought before him one by one and killed in his presence. And then the Babylonian army gouges out his eyes, so the very last thing he saw for the rest of his earthly journey was the death of his own children, now imprinted upon his memory. The orders are given from Nebuchadnezzar down to burn the house of the Lord, to burn every great house of Israel, so anyone of any real sustenance, uh, the nobles, and all the people of note and means are taken away and brought into the land of Babylon to become slaves there. And there's really only the poorest and the weakest, those of no account, who are left behind in Judah because Nebuchadnezzar really doesn't want them polluting his land. And that's the group of people that we sit with in the book of Lamentations as they look at the reality that now is. Gentiles defiling the temple. Anything of any real value in the land has been taken away. All that you've known of rule and and any kind of freedom is all gone. It's just a distant memory. This song that we sing this morning expresses really where the nation is at. Historically, the book has been attributed to Jeremiah. There's plenty of debate on that. But that's why you find it in your Bible after the book of Jeremiah, because it has been historically again put in his mouth as the author of it. Its original Hebrew title is simply the word how, which is the very first word of this song. How? I mean, how has it come to this? How is it that God's people have been defeated in this manner? How is it that the Holy Land is overrun with Gentiles? How does God let this kind of thing happen to the people that he said were the apple of his eye? How? In form, it is a eulogy, almost like a funeral dirge of sorts. But it's interesting, this eulogy is not about a person, it is about a city, it is about a nation. And with it is the bearing of the hopes and dreams that went along with that nation and all that had been promised to her from her God. I mean, it really is a beautiful work of art, if you can say that, in the midst of such a horrible piece of history. That's not unheard of. So many great things have come to us out of the ashes. But there are five poems that correspond to the five books of Lamentations that you read. Uh, The one that we read today and four others are actually an acrostic based on the Hebrew alphabet. 22 letters long, the alphabet, and therefore there are 22 uh, uh, stanzas of this poem, and each one starts with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So if you you can uh, bear uh, the bad analogy, it really is kind of the A to Z of their sorrow, of their complaint. It covers the entirety of it. And it really is given this way to give some shape to the people who are grieving. It lets one get it all out and gives somewhat of a structure to how they can express their pain as they're enduring it. If you've ever suffered greatly, and I would imagine most of you have if you've lived long enough, you understand how terrible uh, grief can be, how aimless 
how overwhelming and dark, where there really is no shape to it. And these sorts of songs were a way for Israel to be able to express in some sort of form kind of the entirety of what they were feeling so they could finally come to a place of rest. You've said it all, now just sit with it for the time being. It does a thorough inventory of their sorrow. It's interesting that it's used liturgically from the time of its writing on in the nation of Israel, that they would annually... Uh, use this book of the Bible as part of their liturgy as they remembered the fall of Jerusalem. And so this wasn't just a personal lament or even a national lament for the time. It was one that was meant to be taken up by the mouths of the people over and over and over again. And then it's given to us in our Bible for us to take up the same thing. Well, why is it here? Let's... uh, see this morning under three headings. First, I want us to see in this text the current darkness. And you really see this in the first 11 verses. When the curtain opens on our main character in the text, we have appear before us a woman huddled in the corner, covered in ash, weeping. And her name is Daughter Zion. She is shown to be, in the first verses, a widow, mourning her beloved, All her former glories are gone. The husband, the home, the table full of children. Her house has been left to her empty, as it says in verse 1. How lonely is the city. She cries in the night. And if you've ever experienced any real grief, you know how difficult this is. How much worse at night when the whole world is shut down and there's nothing left to do and you have to sit there in your sorrow. And here she is in her night, mourning. Those who loved her when she had something to offer, they're all gone. All the lovers that she chased after in front of God's face, interestingly enough, desert her in her time of need. They have nothing to give. There is no comfort coming from the outside world. She is all alone, and that will be repeated through this text over and over. There is no one to comfort her. In verse 3, we, said, we see that she's cast out into the nations where she finds no resting place. The thing that God promised her as he delivered her out of Egypt was that he would establish her and give her this very phrase, a resting place in the land. But now she's been removed from the land, and that hope of rest has been removed with her. Look at verse 4, even the roads that lead into the holy city, even they're crying. And why are they mourning? Why are they weeping? It's because there's no one on the roads traveling for pilgrimage to keep the festivals. There are no more celebrations in Israel. Those three annual feasts where the whole nation would come from wherever they were and uh, worship the Lord in the presence of the city, that is all gone. And so the priests are weeping, the young women are weeping, the town, the city, has been left utterly desolate. You really get the picture uh, in C.S. Lewis's writings, obviously, uh, uh, the, uh, that you know, when he says in Narnia that it was always winter, but never Christmas. You know, that same feeling rests upon this text. They're in the Holy Land, but there's nothing left to celebrate. There is no more festivity there. Verse seven tells us she can remember. Daughter Zion can remember the good old days. But, of course, that only makes it hurt worse. There's something very painful about memory when you're in the midst of grief. 
Even the good memories become sour, of course, when they're tainted with loss. I mean, maybe you have someone or something you love, maybe a child who died, or maybe one who's rebelled, or maybe you have a marriage that fell apart. And when you look back at those old photos, right, you see that child in their youth, what was a happy moment viewed from that perspective, it hurts, right? Or you look at those wedding photos of a relationship that somehow got blown up, and instead of the joy that was there at the moment, through the lens of your suffering, now becomes an even more painful memory because it adds to the reality that those days are gone, that they've died and they're to be mourned. Memory can break your heart. But notice the core of her suffering is that her wholeness, that which made her who she was, is gone. I mean, that's what curse is in the Bible. And it's Jerusalem personified really brings that into our attention. You know, what makes life life, what makes life worthwhile, those are what the Bible calls blessing. And what's hard about our current culture is that we don't even know what curse is anymore. We celebrate it sometimes as if it's no curse at all, or if it's a blessing in and of itself. We don't even know what we're aiming for, so we have no idea what we've missed. But notice, her house is empty. She was called as a nation to be fruitful and to multiply, and she sits there desolate. Notice she's poised as a mother, but she's a mother who has no children. She is a slave. Notice the first verse, she was formerly a princess, and now she's a vassal. She's a slave. You know, the Lord told uh, uh, Adam and Eve at the beginning, fill the earth and subdue it. They were made to be royal people, and this nation was a royal priesthood. But now instead of royal, she's someone else's slave. She is a widow. Her husband is God. gone. The Lord, you will remember, was her husband. So what is she left with? She's left with no protection and no provision. She is at the whim and the will of those who now rule over her. I mean, one of the things that we need to see in our own lives, and even as we engage the culture as it is, is this. We should grieve what we see in our current culture, not because we're mad at the participants or they're doing this and that wrong, as grievous as that is. But we shouldn't hate them for what they're doing in that sense. We should hate them for what it is robbing both from them and from God's creation. I mean, what makes certain sins so ugly and sinful is what it robs from the blessedness that should be there. That sin isn't just wrong because it'll be judged, it is wrong because it makes you less human, it makes you less than what you were supposed to be, and that really is tragic. I mean, we grieve or should grieve because the kids are not all right, that natural relations as they should be, are all awry. And that's not just a problem because it's sinful. It's a problem because it ruins humanity. It ruins their humanity, and it makes our lives less as well. But a lot of times, as I mentioned, we don't even know what curse looks like. And we live in a world where families are constantly just split apart, and it's considered normal, as if it's no big deal. But of course, the breaking apart of that natural reality that God created for our blessing and our good 
is an effect of the fall, and it's part of the curse. You know, marriages die, tables are empty, our work has become meaningless. Sex has become a simple exchange for momentary pleasure, not something that's made for intimacy or to build a marriage relationship. People isolate themselves from community so they can go do their own thing. They sit in front of a screen all day for their own pleasure, not realizing that that is the curse, that is the punishment of the thing. And how often, even as Christians, we get lured into thinking, well, that's what I want. I want to break away from any kind of community or any kind of authority. I just want to go do my own thing and make myself happy, that amazing, destructive idol of personal happiness that is killing us and killing our culture, but ultimately it's robbing from us the very blessings of God, and we can't even oftentimes see it. What we often see as a goal in God's world is our own demise. If you look at verses 5, 8, and 9, what makes this whole thing all the more tragic is that she admits that it's her own fault that things are this way. Notice how she's described. There's uncleanness in her skirts. She's been unfaithful to her God, her husband. And she took no thought of her future. I mean, that's how sin gets us, doesn't it? Short-term, momentary. What will make me happy now? With no vision for what the long-term is supposed to hold. And now Israel has received her consequence And she mourns. She could not think of her future. I mean, how much worse the suffering when you know it's your fault? I mean, we suffer arbitrarily at times. The book of Job teaches us that, the book of Ecclesiastes. But we also suffer sometimes because we're foolish. And man, it hurts, doesn't it? When you look at the consequence and realize... That's on me. Well, now the nation is sitting there beholding their consequence, realizing this is their own doing. And her only cry to God, you'll notice in verse 11, is simply, look. She doesn't say look and help or come and deliver us, just simply look. It's an interesting plea. I mean, look at how despised I am. Well, if that's the current darkness, you'll notice in verses 12 to 22 is the cause of the darkness. The next time we hear this look and see, it's daughter's eye and saying, look, everyone, has anyone seen sorrow like my sorrow? So she's calling the nations to behold her pitiable situation. And then the hardest part of all, We've read the historical account. We know what Babel did. But you'll notice Babylon gets no mention in the book of Lamentations. Instead, she confesses in verse 12, the Lord afflicted me on the day of his great anger. It's my fault, and it's the Lord who's doing it. So all this that you see, the desolation of the city, the burning of the temple, she says, that's God's doing. I mean, God himself is cast in the role, if you will, of the adversary. 
if you look at verses 13 to 15, you notice God is attacking from on high. He started a fire. You know, we've seen the city has been burned. The temple has been burned. He trapped our mighty ones. Uh, he assembled them together. It's interesting language. So he, he called for an assembly. Normally, that's a time of festivity. But when God calls them for this assembly, he says he does so in order that they would be trapped by their enemies, like an animal who's caught in a snare. And he says, and God uses the virgins of Judah to press out the wine of the wine press, meaning they are used as the, the grapes, if you will, that produce the wine in the wine press. And we hear this refrain three times, there's none to comfort, none to comfort, none to comfort. It's clear from this text that it's gone so far that no one can fix it. There is no help coming from man on the outside. I mean, this is the dilemma of the author and the dilemma of any who take God seriously. I mean, we don't like it. This is not popular in our day and age, uh, but we need to look at it. I mean, we confess as those who uh, are Presbyterian, that God ordains whatsoever comes to pass. I mean, the problem of our Calvinism is right here in the book of Lamentations. One, it, I would say this, it, it proves we're right because the ugliest parts of what we teach and the way that it's brought before us are right here in the book of Lamentations. People want to say, well, you know, bad things happen, but it's not God's fault. Bad things happen, but God's not involved. People do it. And here in the book of Lamentation, God's own people say, Lord, you did it. You've become my adversary. And God says, good, write that down. Breathe out by the Holy Spirit and give it to my people. I mean, again, it's not popular and it's not real attractive. This wouldn't be the first thing I put on the banner to advertise for the church. Uh, but these things are said in concert. It is your fault as the nation because of your sin. God really does promote his holiness in the judgment of sin. God is not afraid to say, you deserved everything you got because of the sin that you performed. And he takes full ownership of the fact of, yes, I have brought these miseries to pass. And the reason we struggle with it so deeply is because we believe, of course, that we are the center of all stories, but the center of the story of this world. And God is trying to get us to back up and say, there's another character at play here. And my holiness and my glory really will get first billing. That God really will judge sin. And when we confess this, it's interesting that uh, Elie Vassell, the gentleman we quoted earlier, says this, after surviving the Holocaust and talking about the horrors of it, he says, I believe in God. In fact, I never stopped believing in God. And that's why I had the problem, the crisis of faith. I mean, think about what he's saying. Notice he goes on, if I had stopped believing, I would have been much more at peace. It would have been okay to be disappointed in human beings. What else could you expect from a human being who is the object of seduction and all kinds of ambition? It is easier if God does not enter the equation. But the moment you start to believe in God, then how can you accept the world? 
Do you then accept God's absence? Do you then accept his silence? I mean, this is what the author of Lamentations is struggling with. God is here, God is real, God is involved, and this is all happening to God's people. We confess it week in and week out, as hard as it is for some to stomach, that we believe in a God who will come to judge the living and the dead. And what is happening here to Judah is merely a precursor to what is going to happen to all sin at some point in human history. And as much as we want to make the Bible cleaner and God nicer and for it to fit culturally better with what we're doing, there is no way around the holiness of God and His just judgments. This was the Lord's doing. Well, we conclude then with this, the dilemma of comfort in the dark. The dilemma of comfort, I mean... What do we do? If all of this is true, the author's dwelling in darkness says, yeah, it's, it's my fault, I sinned. And the whole calamity is brought upon them by God, the God that they were supposedly children of. What do you do? I mean, do you go to God? the one you know that could have stopped it all to begin with? And instead you have confessed he's the cause. I mean, is he our comfort? But if he's our comfort, how can he also be the cause of our discomfort? And how do you deal with that? I mean, psychologically, how do you deal with that? I mean, so much of our faith lives right here, whether you've experienced it yet or not. Some of you have. And some of you know how this feels. When the bad things happen... You know, the real ones, and they will. Then what? Do we get mad at God or do we trust Him? Or both? <laughs> if the latter, why? Why do we trust Him and how? I mean, that was Vassell's dilemma as he was there in the concentration camp. He says, Never shall I forget that night, for that night in camp that turned my life into one long night. I will never forget the small faces of the children whose bodies I saw transformed into smoke under a silent sky. Never shall I forget those flames that consumed my faith forever. He goes on, blessed be God's name. Why? Why would I bless him? Every fiber of me rebelled because he caused thousands of children to be buried in mass graves. But as he goes on through his struggle, he ends this way, but if I don't, what would I do? Do what, really? Could I not believe? If I were not who I am, of course I would not, but I am who I am. I cannot not believe. Choose what? Is it better to be agnostic or better to be an atheist? I don't know. I've never tried. I accept having faith. I call it a wounded faith. My faith is wounded, but I believe. A very great Hasidic master once said, no heart is as whole as a broken heart but I paraphrase it differently. No faith is as pure as a wounded faith because it is a faith with an eye open or an open eye. Look at verse 22 here at the bottom in helplessness. This author finds a way to God. 
I mean, where do you go when all is gone, when no human comfort will do, when all, as the hymn says, all their helpers fail and comforts flee, when you've done all your trying and scheming and doing and you know that nothing can undo what is? I mean, that is the paradox of pain. The one who didn't protect us may just be the only one who can heal us. Or the one who brings his wrath is the only one who can also bring his comfort. Well, we see it, interestingly, in these phrases from our author. You'll remember in verse 11, look is all she says. She doesn't say help, just look. And then again in verse 20, look, O Lord. And then in verse 22, please take notice, look. One thing that this suffering one uh, still can proclaim through the judgment of God is that God's character is clearly firm, right? God judged Israel because God promised that he would judge her if she disobeyed, if she was not faithful to the covenant she had made with him. God kept his word. He's faithful. And so all she can do at the end is say, fine, then judge our enemies too. At least she's firm on this fact that God's character is firm. He remains the same. His justice proves this fact. You'll also notice that with this cry to look, that, she, uh, that the author chooses the covenant name of Yahweh in the second half of the, of the text, 22, 12 to 22, over and over, Yahweh, 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 that name that he pronounced over the nation. The Lord, the Lord, gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love and compassion, as we'll learn about next week even more. So what does this have to do with anything? The name of Yahweh and this idea of look, look, look. It's been said that the definition of chutzpah was founded on this parable, or at least uh, is most prominently displayed by it. That there was a young boy who killed both of his parents. And then he threw himself on the mercy of the court because he was an orphan. That's chutzpah. Well, that may sound strange, but that's somewhat what the daughter of Zion is doing here. I mean, look, everyone, she says, to the world. Look twice to God. Have you ever seen grief like this? I'm a widow. I'm childless. I'm a slave. I'm poor. I'm destitute, lowly and outcast. The exact kind of person that God promises in Scripture he has mercy on. So notice Israel is reframing herself to say, I have nothing, but if your character is firm, as is shown by your justice, then your character also must remain firm that you love the fatherless and the widow, that you have compassion on those who are weak and have no help from the outside. And what does she say over and over? I have no comforter, no one to comfort me. Well, then who else will stand? Well, the God of Scripture says over and over, that's kind of my gig. That's my cup of tea. I come to those who have no hope and no help. You see the difference between the judge in the parable of the boy who killed his parents and then asked for mercy because he was an orphan is, as we will learn next week, is this judge's mercy 
is deeper than his justice. It's new every morning. It never runs out. And as true as it is that he will judge the world, he also delights to show mercy to those who are in need. You see, you can't rid yourself of God or his nature. Even in this complaint that is made known, But that might just be where we find our help. I mean, do you think your anger at God is bigger than God's mercy toward you? Do you think that your complaint to Him or your frustration or you're letting Him know that things aren't the way that you had hoped they would be is enough to drive away His kindness? You'll notice that the salvation that comes in this particular book of the Bible is not some bolt from the blue fix. We don't even know by the end of it, if it'll be fixed or how it will be fixed. But we just might find ourselves, if we give ourselves to God, in His eternal embrace. Hope is not out of the question with a God like this. That's what the author wants us to know. If His character is what it is, then hope is also on the horizon. And if it does get better, which it may not, and hear that, Christian, it may not get better for you in this life. And that's one of those pills that you really need to sit with. Will you forsake God if the current thing you're going through does not get fixed? But even if it does get better, it will never be the Garden of Eden, ever. So come with all that you have, all your complaints, all your frustrations. Let God, scripturally speaking, have it. And what you just might discover is that God already has you. That part of that anger is based in faith, that there is only one to complain to. The song of grace that we will sing must be really loud, must be really strong in order to outdo the sorrow that's presented in this text, but also the sorrow that's presented in our lives. And it is. I mean, God answers this dark hour in the book of Lamentations with a darker hour still when our Savior cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Someone far more dear to the Father than the city of Jerusalem is slain because His mercy triumphs over judgment. And so may you put your hope in Him this morning. Let's pray.